Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled Defining Peace was given by Darren Roundson and is the second in our series of Waiting and Expectations. Peace is a very familiar word we use all the time. And we're looking at uh, hope, peace, joy, and love this Christmas season, this Advent season, as a way to prepare for uh, the Incarnation, prepare for Christmas. And peace um, is one of those words that we talk about often. And it's a very familiar word for us, and it was a very familiar word for many people throughout history. And oftentimes, we miss the bigger picture. And this morning, as we set ourselves up to look at what peace really is about, what peace means, um, I want to invite you to grab a Bible. We're going to kind of do a biblical safari, if you will. Um, And we're going to look at this topic, peace. You know, in the Old Testament, there's Bibles on the sides. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll give you a Bible. If you don't have one, um, you can take this Bible home with you as a gift. Um, uh, Please take it. In the Old Testament, people experience chaos beyond chaos. And the Israelites is a story we've told their story many a times. In the Old Testament, we realized um, that there was a time when, when there was uh, former glory for the Israelites, where they were the nation of nations, where they were pros- prospering. They were in, in peace. They had no war. Their, uh, David, King David uh, protected their borders and established them as a nation of strength, And then it came to, because of their disobedience, that they were uh, exiled into Babylon where they were ruled by foreigners. And they were slaves. And it was there that the Israelites were reawakened or, or the prophets of the Israelites reignited the flames of imagination where peace was promised. Where there was this, this, this bubbling up that in the midst of political chaos, in the midst of being slaves, in the midst of, 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 of oppression, of injustice, there were prophets of old, Isaiah being one of them we've talked about, that, that begin to just bubble up with imagination of what it might look like. What it might look like in the future when God would come and redeem the people of Israel once and for all. And we've told this story as we've talked through the, um, the kingdom um, series that we've been going through. But Isaiah is somebody I want to I highlight. And throughout the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, you have this theme of peace. That, there, that the Messiah would break in and bring this sense of peace and rulership of, of God's kingdom and God's justice, God's peace on earth once and for all. And that this peace would come with a battle, with victory. In Isaiah, um, in chapter 9, go to Isaiah chapter 9, um, verse 6. Isaiah 9, verse 6. I believe it's uh, page 481 in, in the Yellow Bibles, but we'll have it on the screen. Isaiah begins to talk about this person that would come, this Messiah figure, and he describes what it will be like in verse 6. It says, For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over the kingdom 
uh, his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah prophesies that one day the Messiah will come. He will be called the Prince of Peace. And he will, he will bring a peace that will last forever for all of eternity. And in Isaiah 11, he describes this peace, what it looks like. And it's, it's this word, this Old Testament word called shalom, which means wholeness. And, and in Isaiah 11, uh, Isaiah describes what it looks like. And he describes it as a lion with a lamb, um, uh, the wolf with the, the calf. And the, 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 the lion will eat straw with the ox. A child will stick his hand in the, in the den of a viper and there will be no harm. There's this beautiful picture of shalom. And Zechariah, you read all the Old Testament minor prophets, and there's this there's promise that one day God's going to come. God's going to bring His peace. There's this anticipation. There's this expectation, this waiting in expectation for God to once and for all bring His peace. And then it, the, the, the story of the Old Testament ends in Malachi, where God promises this, this messenger to come who will prepare the way for this Messiah figure. And he will look like Elijah. And Malachi ends. And there's no resolve. There's no peace. The prophets prophesy. They, they dream these dreams. They, they have this great picture of what it will look like. What, what, what it will be like when God brings his peace. But, but it's, it's unresolved. There's, there's, their expectations are unfulfilled. There's a hope for peace. That's not fulfilled. And the Old Testament ends. And then there's 400 years of silence. The story of Israelites, they long for this, God, this peace of God. And it ends and there's 400 years with not one word from God. Not one prophet, not one spirit-filled man bringing this announcement. It's, there's silence. And we, we hate this. We, we hate these movies. You know those movies that, where, where the ending comes? It's, uh, you get them especially nowadays, all the modern films, the postmodern films, like No Country for Old Men. You just kind of watch that film through the lens of, of American culture. They're supposed to be beginning, middle, and end. And, it, you know, there's great resolve. The bad guy gets beaten and the good guy's victor. But you end that movie and you're like, what happened? Or we, we love the, the, um, the romantic comedies, but we hate those kind of sad comedies where you don't think it ends like it should. But something inside of us, are, are, we're waiting for this to be answered, for there to be resolve. But in the Old Testament, there's no resolve. And we know the story, 400 years of silence, and then Luke, the gospel writer, begins his gospel catching on to this theme that there's been silence. And he begins his gospel with the announcement of John the Baptist being born. Go to Luke chapter 1. There's been, uh, we're going to look at verse uh, 77. But the story uh, that Luke begins is he's telling the story of two, two babies being born, John the Baptist and Jesus. And Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And for 400 years there's been silence. Zechariah is a priest and it just so happens that he is a priest that is burning incense. Um, he was chosen by, by luck to burn incense in the temple. And he gets to the temple, and here's how the story goes. He gets there, he's supposed to form this, uh, perform this priestly duty. And, and when he gets there, he's confronted by an angel of Gabriel, is, is his name. And, and this angel tells him, hey, you're going to have a son. 
and um, your barren wife will no longer be barren, and he's going to be this messenger, this one that will prepare the way for the Messiah. And as an as a embodiment of Israel, the angel makes him go mute. He's no longer able to, to speak the words that were spoken to him, and he's pregnant with promise. And sure enough, John the Baptist comes to the scene. He's born. And after nine months of being mute, not being able to talk, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. And for the first time in 400 years of Israelites' history, there's a word from God. The Holy Spirit anoints Zechariah to, to speak this almost Old Testament prophecy. And we read that in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. Um, it says, And his father, they're talking about John the Baptist, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, a bunch of great stuff, and then go to verse 76. He looks at John the Baptist, his baby boy, and he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace. The New Testament opens up with this pronouncement, this announcement of God's peace. And what happens? Well, Jesus is born, and what do the angels say? Peace on earth. Peace on earth. The New Testament begins reimagining this Old Testament concept of shalom, peace. And it just reignites for all of the Jewish community what was expected to come when the Messiah would finally come. And Jesus' life is marked by God's peace. Jesus' life is marked and his ministry is marked by God's peace. Real quick, go to John chapter 14. Guys, stay with me in this because I want to land somewhere um, and it's, it's going to be good. <laughs> I'm confident of that. So Jesus' birth is marked by God's peace. It's marked by the announcement that God's peace is here. There's an Old Testament story that God's peace is coming with the Messiah and here's the announcement. It's here. Jesus' life begins to happen and in John chapter 14, go to verse uh, 26. Jesus is talking to his disciples before he is crucified, before he is resurrected. And this is what he says to them. He says to his disciples, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And this, this is what he says. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus ends this conversation with his disciples and saying it twice. Peace I give you, my peace I leave you, not as the world gives. What kind of peace is Jesus talking about? What kind of peace is Jesus getting at? Because, you know, we want the end of the tension. We want the resolve to come. But Jesus is not talking about domestic tranquility. He's not talking about a, an absence of warfare. He's not talking about all the birds and the, and, and, the, and the animals playing together right now. That's not what he's talking about. 
He's not talking about uh, circumstances of our lives being perfect, that that's the type of peace he wants to give us. Because sometimes in the midst of our circumstances, God has us right where he wants us, and we're being stoned to death. That doesn't seem very peaceful to me. He's not talking about feelings that we get. And when we pray over each other and just say, I hope you, you have peace. This feeling that comes and goes when our life is in order or not. That's not the peace that Jesus is talking about. It's not the peace that we're talking about. It's not the feeling of calm, calmness. It's not getting your house all figured out and making sure that all the, all the bills are paid. That's not the peace that Jesus is talking about. That's not the peace he's inviting us to receive. The peace that Jesus is getting at really begins in Genesis chapter 1. And you know the, this great narrative, and I'm going to tell it over and over again, but Genesis 1 and 2, God creates man, and man and women and woman live together in harmony in Genesis 1 and 2. They live in God's shalom, God's presence. They are, are in right relationship with each other and with God and with, with all of creation. And then what happens? Genesis 3. Sin enters into the world. And what does sin do? It destroys the very fabric of what we are intended to live with in the first place. Immediately, the relationship between man and woman are destroyed. Adam will say to Eve, this woman that you gave me made me do it. When the chapter before, he's saying, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We shall be, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. But in Genesis 3, there's a, a breaking of community. There's a breaking of identity. We, we clothe ourselves because we're ashamed with leaves. And then eventually, we will hide from God. Genesis chapter 3. And then the story of sin and humanity continues forward. It's so bad that God sends a flood. He saves Noah. Eventually, he selects Moses or Abraham. And then he gets Moses to free the Israelites out of the nation of Israel. Israelites are one nation. They're, they're in Jerusalem. They're doing some great things. They're set apart to be a holy people. And then eventually, they go into exile because they disobey God. And then eventually, there's silence. And Jesus comes into the scene and he says, Peace, I leave you. Peace, I give you. There's a grand narrative of God's peace on earth. You see, the Israelites, when they were in exile, when they were dreaming of what peace would look like, the type of peace that they were looking for was uh, a peace against the political corruption they had. A peace over the, um, the chaos of life. A peace over the injustice that was happening to them. That they were now slaves. That things were getting horrible. It was a tangible expression. They wanted God to come with a victory. They were hoping that the Messiah would come with a sword. And that he would defeat all of the, the enemies of Israel, like Joshua. And he would go and wipe out the enemies of Israel, establishing God's reign through a sword. That's the peace they wanted. That's the peace they were looking for. They were looking for a victory battle, where the Messiah would lead them into a battle against the, the powers that they could see, against the Roman Empire. And some, some Jews in the first century, they would stockpile weapons in synagogues waiting for the Messiah to come so that they could grab their swords and charge the emperor Caesar. That's the peace that they were looking for, peace by a sword. And for many of us, that's the peace we're looking for. Peace that comes to fill our circumstances, to fight the battles that we have. But Jesus didn't come bring, and bring that peace, did he? There's still wars. There's still hunger. There's still... No peace in the Middle East. 
Jesus came to defeat a much more vicious enemy. Jesus came to battle a much more bigger, much more bigger, a greater battle. Jesus came to battle sin and death. The greatest destruction of humanity. When we are created to live forever, because of sin we entered into death. And Jesus came to say, not on my watch. Jesus said, I come to bring peace. So Jesus fights a different battle. He fights an age-old war to bring peace. And what happened in the garden wasn't to remain in the garden. Jesus is working hard to renew and restore all things back to Genesis 1 and 2. The peace that Jesus brings is this. Jesus brings right relationship to God, right relationship to self, right relationship to each other, and right relationship to creation. The peace that we're talking about is right relationship to God, self, others, and creation. That whoever would believe in Jesus, whoever would say you are the Messiah, could receive something that was destroyed thousands of years ago by our own choice. The freedom to accept forgiveness and freedom to accept his peace. This is what shalom is all about. This is what shalom is all about. And in order to, to illustrate this, I, I want you guys to go to Luke chapter 7. Go to Luke chapter 7, and we'll land there, make a couple more points, and we'll worship. Um, Luke 7, verse 36. I'm not here this morning to talk about how to fix all your problems or that Jesus will sort your life out. Because sometimes when you accept Jesus, everything does fall apart. I'm here to say that there's a greater battle going on. There's a greater war being fought. And there's a greater need for the peace that Jesus is talking about than the peace that we can reconcile in our minds. And this is a story of a woman who understood his peace. Listen to this story in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of anointment, of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, with her hair on her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know or would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, that she, in fact, is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they, couldn't, uh, they could not pay, he canceled both of their debts. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he has canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. And she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, this whole time, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, 
Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Go in wholeness. Could you imagine? Could you imagine what's happening here? This story always rips my heart up because I want to get something across. This woman breaks every social barrier. It says that she's a sinner. Not just a sinner, that means she's probably a prostitute. She walks into a Pharisee's house, they're reclining at the table. You are never in a million years, if you are not invited to the table of fellowship, you are not supposed to cross the boundary lines. This woman grabs an alabaster jar. What is that? That's a dowry most likely given to her on her wedding day as a dowry for her husband. And when she got divorced, most likely, she took it out of the marriage. That would have been worth a year's worth of wages. She hears that Jesus is at this dinner. She grabs her 401k, grabs her lifeline, the only thing keeping her from the streets other than prostitution, and runs it to Jesus. And as she stands behind him, she begins to weep. And as she sees her tears hit her feet, his feet, she recognizes what? She's getting his feet wet. I got, I got a wipe. She takes her hair down, which would be like a woman taking off her top in today's culture, wipes her feet, his feet with her hair, and takes her 401k, takes her security blanket, takes the thing that separates her from death and life and pours it as an offering to Jesus as thanksgiving, forgetting the fact what's happening in this room, the fact that there's judgment because she's a sinner, the fact that she shouldn't be touching this holy man, the fact that all she can do in her gratitude because somehow... She encountered Jesus already and it compelled her to come and stand in gratitude weeping because of what happened. And what happened in Jesus' illustration is that she had already been forgiven. She encounters Jesus and she's forgiven. And the tears are not tears of shame, they're tears of gratitude for what he's done. Because anyone that knows the sin of your own life knows that there's a great barrier between you and perfection. But when you encounter perfection and you receive it, the only thing that can be said to you is go now in wholeness. And this woman, this daughter of Israel, this woman who's been marked by society as a sinner, a prostitute, has been excommunicated from the community, herself has probably looked in the mirrors of shame and guilt with her head down, has her head lifted up by the Messiah King and says, you, my child, are forgiven. Go in peace. Go in right relationship to yourself. Go in right relationship to God. Go in right relationship to community. Peace that Jesus is talking about is the restoration of our humanity what it was intended to be in the first place. And for many of us, we need to just stop right there. Some of you have never accepted the grace and forgiveness that God offers, the peace that He wants to delight upon you. And He wants to say the same things that He said to that woman, your your sins are forgiven, go in wholeness. Some of us are sitting in the brokenness of our own lives, in the ashes of our, our, our what was once perfect. The divorce, the, the marriage that we have, we sit and we just need God to say over us, go in wholeness. 
So for some of you, would you just stop there and just receive that? But the story of peace doesn't end there. And this is what was interesting to me as I was journeying through this message. The story does not end there. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, well, there's another announcement for us. John chapter 20. You don't have to go there, but I'm going to read this to you. Jesus has already said to his disciples before his resurrection or before his crucifixion that I give you my peace. I'm going to send my counselor. But in John chapter 20, Jesus experiences his death and experiences his resurrection. And in the midst of locked doors, Jesus appears before his disciples. And he says something, again, very peculiar and interesting. He says to his disciples in John 20, verse 19, Peace be with you. It was a common greeting. And then shows him, uh, shows his disciples the wounds on his hands and the side. And then he says to them again, Peace be with you. Shalom, wholeness, be with you. The fulfilled expectation of Israel being at peace is here through the resurrection. You have it. I give it to you. I'm not giving it to you as the earth or as the world gives to you. I'm giving you my peace. And then what does he do? He breathes on them and in, in John's gospel, gives them the Holy Spirit. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says this to all of his disciples. And for, we need to hear this. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 19. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, they are withheld. Jesus gives us peace as the ultimate demonstration and restoration of God's creation. This was the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation. Christ gives us his peace, but then he does this. He commissions us to bring peace to to the world. So what is Christmas all about? Well, let me say this too. Forgiveness is the ultimate demonstration of our peace. Forgiveness is the ultimate demonstration of our peace. Ephesians 2, Paul will, will, will articulate this really well and say, there was once a dividing wall between you and God, and Christ himself embodied that. He became the doorway, if you will, to the peace you ha- now have. Through, through Christ, we can now come to God with confidence and freedom. But here's the point. Christmas is a time that we celebrate the peace that Christ has given us. Christmas is a time that we celebrate the uh, the peace that Christ has given us. And it's also a time that we recognize the responsibility He has entrusted us with to bring peace on earth. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are commissioned to be practitioners of shalom. If you are followers of Christ, you are commissioned to be practitioners of shalom, to be and practice Peacemaking. How on earth do we practice that? (laughs) How how do we do that? Well, I I just want to funnel this through my life. I like to take the message and say, what does this mean to me? And I just want to say this out loud. Brothers and sisters, we need to become practitioners of peace. We need to steward the peace that Christ has given us to bring it His peace on earth as it is in heaven. It's not ours, it's His. We become 
the embodiment of peace through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Two of us. Amen? Come on. How do we practice peace? How do we practice peace, guys? If you're married, you should memorize this question. Will you please forgive me? Will you please forgive me? If you're married, you should memorize this statement. I forgive you. Forgiveness becomes the way we practice peace. That's what Jesus did. Your sins are forgiven. Go and hold it. And here's how, here's how it relates to me. I have a extremely, um, I have a great memory, which is a strength and a big curse. What does this mean for me? Well, I, uh, I can recall comments that kids made to me on the playground when I was in third grade. Seriously. I can recall um, the feelings I had when my parents told me they were getting a divorce. The thoughts that came to my mind towards certain family members. I can recall the very first argument my wife and I had when we were dating. Our first, my first girlfriend, my wife today, um, and the first time we argued, I can recall what we fought about. And I can recall also the number of times I brought up that argument over and over and over and over again. You see, guys, forgiveness is the ultimate display of peace because forgiveness brings reconciliation. And we need a lot of reconciling in our lives. What does that do? If, if I continue to hold on to the memories of pain, what do they do? They bubble up. They bubble up. So when my wife is talking to me about cleaning the dishes and I yell at her, I'm not yelling at her about the dishes. I'm yelling at her because of the things I haven't forgiven her for. How many of you guys can relate to this? Or, or the fact that there has, have been things in our lives that are horrible, horrible things. Divorces, deaths, Intentional pain-causing experiences where your friend blatantly lies to you over and over again and then his marriage falls apart and you feel betrayed. Peace, guys, is saying to that person, I forgive you. And then practicing forgiveness every single day. Because if you're like me, you'll never forget. Forgiveness is continuing, continuing forgiving others. Continually forgiving is what forgiveness is really about. So for, you, for me, uh, it, it's, it's learning to let go of the small things. Guys, I'm a pastor. And uh, if you didn't know, I'm a pastor. And um, I, get, I get emails. I'll get affirmations. That message was awesome. It was great. It really spoke to me. But then I get out of you know, 15 or 20 emails that are good, I'll get that one comment. You guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe this is just me. You get that one, that one little paper cut. And over time, those paper cuts add up. We, brothers and sisters, need to develop a great vocabulary of forgiveness. We need to forgive easily. So how do we practice peace? We forgive easily. And we ask for forgiveness. Because what happens 
Well, since I was a kid, I remember being picked on and teased and criticized for everything. Whether they were saying it or not, I thought they were. What does that do to my uh, relationship to my wife? Well, I, I bring that baggage into that relationship. There's no, I, I blame her for those things. What does that do with my relationship to God? Well, I see God sometimes as the cosmic critic that's teasing and waiting to say, you messed up. Forgiveness. Sometimes some of us need to just forgive ourselves and just say, good enough is good enough. Amen? So here's what we're going to do tonight, or this morning. It's going to take all night, just kidding. Some of us have some serious things. I want to invite Brian up. I'm going to invite you guys to, um, if you have a piece of paper, would you pull out a piece of paper? I think there's some on chairs. We like to practice what we preach. Um, why don't you just think for a moment. They're going to lead us in a song of worship. And here's what I, what, I, what I want to invite you to do. I want you to write down a couple of things on this piece of paper. Number one, write down the names of people in your life you need to forgive. Maybe you need a couple of sheets of paper. <laughs> but seriously, would you, in this time of reflection and worship, would you write down the names of people in your life you need to forgive? Some of us have horrible experiences that we can't even name, that we have identified as our identity because of that pain and there is no peace. I want to invite you today to write that name down and ask God to show you how to forgive. Some of us have relationships that are currently hurting us. And it's like they just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And you need to ask today that God will give you the strength to forgive. That's number one. The second thing is, who are the people in your life that you need to ask forgiveness for? Who have you harmed that you need to ask for forgiveness? Write down those names. And maybe response today is simply going outside and calling that person. If you have the courage going outside and calling the, the parent that left you as a child and say, I forgive you. And who knows what can happen. Peace can be restored. And the third thing is, I just, wanna, I just think some of us really need to forgive ourselves. So write out the things that you want to forgive yourself for. So three things. One, we'll just start with this. Who are the people in your life you need to forgive? That's hard. Number two, who are the people in your life that you need to ask forgiveness from? And number three, what are the things in your life that you need to forgive? Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from the Garden, or if you would like to find out more about the Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.